0: hello everyone welcome back to LA not so confidential I am Dr Shiloh and I'm here with my other half best friend partner in crime
1: hey it's Dr Scott with a strangely hoarse voice maybe from I don't know <laughs> I don't know what that's from' Just
0: feeling horsey today me too I'm a little horsey yeah but we're feeling much better than the last episode and yes probably the next episode that you will hear. We were under the weather when we recorded that as well. So yeah, we're back ready to go rounding out June with another psych episode today for you.
1: So as we are integrating into our regular episodes, we do a last episode recap. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to Ellie Not So Confidential's last episode, please do so when you get a chance. It's the kickoff episode to our monthly vintage crime episodes. And it focuses on the tragic child murders at the Devils' Gate Dam, which is in northeastern Los Angeles. We also explore the totally bizarre connection to a literal mad genius, rocket scientist Jack Parsons, who not only helped the U.S. succeed in the space race and develop rocket fuels for our defense industry, but also worked with L. Ron Hubbard to physically incarnate the ancient goddess Babylon. Wild stuff.
0: He also worked with in heavy air quotes.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, welcome to what we hope will be an annual Pride episode that also kind of doubles as a vintage episode as we look back at what? Like, how long are we looking back today?
1: We start back about 1500 years. So, I think it qualifies. <laughs>
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: <laughs> in 2019, we touched on some particularly brutal crimes that have been committed against members of the LGBTQIA plus community and the systems that kept those victims marginalized and making solving the crimes really challenging.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this year, we're hoping to go back and look at the history of criminalizing same-sex relationships, providing you a bit of historical context, the major event that shifted the public perspective in the United States and Europe. Then we'll explore some examples of LGBTQIA plus individuals who unfortunately were victimized by existing legal systems that labeled an Im- prison them as criminals, all because of their sexual identities.
1: Exactly. So just to start off with a brief statement on sexuality as a spectrum. So, you know, we often refer to sexuality as a spectrum when it really is a lot more complex than that. It's really more like a number of sometimes intersecting spheres within a larger sphere. So think of a 3D Venn diagram that encompasses not only your sexual orientation, but also your sexual expression, your gender identity, and your gender Expression. And then to make it even more complex, for some individuals, those spheres can shift throughout life, intersecting with others or disentangling with some. And then there are some people that remain absolutely static throughout their life.
0: Yeah, we now live in a time and a culture that for the most part allows for a lot more introspection and exploration of all these factors without an immediate and overt threat to one's life. But the key phrase here being for the most part, <laughs> Yeah. but let's look at the history of being the other in terms of sexuality throughout history and how this marginalization led to criminalizing same-sex relationships as civilization and cultures changed?
1: So as countries and cultures were colonized and shaped by the major world players, we can see how the last 500 years was strongly affected by one particular influence, that being organized religion and the use of organized religion to influence the development of secular law. So LGBTQIA plus populations have faced legal challenges for hundreds of years, this initially started under religious laws, religious laws that, generally speaking, have emerged from the root of abrahamic traditions and belief systems.
0: And these religious rules eventually merged into legal codes that were supposed to be somewhat secular, but of course they were heavily influenced by the traditions that preceded them. Laws that were first laid out in Europe multiplied during colonial periods, and then they were further influenced by the religious beliefs of the colonists, that shifted once the colonies became more distant from the governments that had sent them.
1: And as these countries from Europe continue to expand their colonization with control and culture modification, they brought with them the systems that criminalized alternative sexualities, many times imposing them over indigenous traditions where same-sex activity and gender diversity may have been much more flexible, much more accepting, and certainly did not carry the same level of marginalization Right.
0: So let's circle back around to sodomy. The history of the word from biblical understanding (laughs) referred only to two sexual acts. The first, anal intercourse between two men or a man and a woman. But number two, referred to sexual intercourse between a human being and an infrahuman, fascinating term for a non-human animal, usually meaning a primate, of the opposite sex.
1: So because of the complete ignorance of most biological issues during medieval times, there was really a solid belief that bestiality would lead to half-human, half-beast offspring. Human sodomy or anal intercourse was deemed illegal and sacrilegious because of the belief that this was the preferred activity between witches and the devil, and they were thought to engage in this activity with each other as part of ritual.
0: So just throwing all kinds of stuff in here, like, what freaks people out? Let's say it's that. Right, (laughs) exactly.
1: (laughs) Just throw it all in there.
0: (laughs) I think it's a good idea if we give a basic timeline of significant points through LGBTQIA plus history.
1: Right. Okay. Actually, we started off pretty good in the European tradition in the year 138 AD, which was the second century for us math-impaired folks. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The Roman emperor Hadrian had many lovers, but he was particularly besotted with Antonius, a reportedly very beautiful young man who died while in the Roman province within what is now known as Egypt. And when Hadrian learned of his death, Hadrian created a cult that raised Antonius god status. Hadrian built temples around Europe, as well as many of the sculptures of him throughout the Roman Empire. It's pretty romantic, so revered that your lover makes you into a god and starts a cult.
0: Yeah, I need to see a picture of this Antonius. Yeah. Well, a picture of a carving of this
1: Antonius. Yeah, see if he you meets your standards. <laughs>
0: yes, yes. <laughs> I have my own Antonius that I am in love with and been married to for a very long time, so yes. we gotta see if he stands up to that. While well, the complex influence of Greek and Roman traditions of pederasty, also known as sexual activity between a man and a youth, allowed for male same-sex relationships and was somewhat revered in those cultures. The concept of what we now understand to be consent was completely foreign back then. There's also the issue with the vast gulf between rights of men and women in ancient Greece that gets buried in these conversations. Essentially, they had no political rights of any kind. So women and children had lives that were completely controlled by men. The responsibility of a woman who lived in a larger populated area was basically to have children, preferably male, and to manage the household, a tradition that carried on for hundreds of years throughout many, many world cultures.
1: And you and I have talked... On many, we referred either in depth or you know just superficially about our experience and that Mm -hmm. that particular excuse in working with our sex offender clients, which where they would be like, "But the Greeks did it. The Greeks did it." Like, yeah, no, that's not the same thing here. It
0: was a very particular cognitive distortion that I think you and I saw. Where I can't even in other areas of psychology, I can't really think of an example of a cognitive distortion where it's sort of this like historical thing or concept or behavior that you're gonna hang your hat on and try to cling to justify the criminal and illegal and horrific behavior that you're engaging in it was just it very very specific and you know exactly as you're saying dr Scott like our clients would look at us dead in the face and just say like look this was something that was accepted at one time and would try to actually convince us and other group members which we had to squash pretty quickly that this should excuse their behavior that if it it happened all these years ago, of course, not knowing anything about consent or how these children felt back then or any of that, not taking any of that into consideration. They're trying to convince us that it's a good thing and it was pretty disturbing.
1: Well, and something that's 1500 to 3000 years old, you know, has modern meaning and modern utility in today's society yeah. when, when that particular thing absolutely does not, you know, then right. we could go down a whole rabbit hole of how that absolutely does not apply. But I think most of our listeners actually already get that, but yeah, thank you I, for that I, explanation. I, so I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, look, while it stays relatively stable for the next few hundred years, we move forward to about 1290, where suddenly gays were an offense against God. And, you know, really, other than a couple of verses in the Bible that continue really to be controversial today in regards to their historical interpretation from Aramaic and Hebrew, particularly the Old Testament story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Two medieval treatises, Flata and 1290 in Britain around 1300, both saw the term sodomy, another widely defined term for the time that allowed for religious trials that felt appropriate punishment as being burnt to death or being buried alive. These punishments were also applied to sorcerers, sorceresses, renegades, sodomites, and heretics publicly convicted. So all in all, I would have been in really great company, I guess.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, (laughs) definitely. But unfortunately, this laid the groundwork for a law heavily influenced by the church in Europe resulting in the Buggery Act. In 1533, King Henry VIII broke with the Catholic Church to accommodate his voracious, serial, monogamish relationships, more like uh, serial killing, am I right? (laughs) A lot of ecclesiastical law was revised and repackaged into supposedly secular law that included sexual offenses. An example was the Act for the Punishment of The vice of buggery, which punishable by death became an act of parliament. So that was England's first civil sodomy law. And although technically anyone could be convicted, the most common convictions were, of course, those for same sex relations. For the next 300 years, it went back and forth between religious and secular courts when it was officially replaced in 1828 by the Offenses Against the Person Act of 1828. And guess what? That act became solely focused on sexual activity between two males. And within 300 years, British colonial rule had exported anti-sodomy laws around the
1: world. And, you know, there was some pushback historically back in 1623. Sir Francis Bacon published The Advancement of Learning, An Argument for Empirical Research and against superstition. So he really developed this deductive system for empirical research that earned him the title of modern science. And he was an openly gay man at the time and maybe perhaps protected somewhat by his reputation, but he Mm -hmm. was actively pushing back against the influence of non-secular law or religious influence into secular law.
0: Yeah, it, it sounds like it. But it goes downhill from here because in 1624, Richard Cornish of the Britain colony in Virginia is tried and hanged for sodomy. Mm. In
1: 1649, Sarah White Newman was charged for lewd behavior with Mary Vincent Hammond in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Now, this is significance as it is the first recognized conviction for lesbian activity. Shouldn't be surprised if they just try them as witches. I mean, it's like demonic succubus, Shiloh cast a spell upon my nether regions.
0: (laughs) Well, it is in Massachusetts. So you think like... They that just time. kind of, let's pick what which one we want to hang them for, or burn them for, or whatever yeah. they did. But generally well-regarded for his writing skills and political accomplishments, Thomas Jefferson in 1779 revises Virginia law, making sodomy punishable by mutilation rather than death. Oh, thanks, Thomas. Great. Okay. And fun fact, it now applies to men and women. Wow. So again, thank you, Founding Father.
1: Yeah, I I mean, we were definitely jumping through time here, but there was, you know, these are some major events that come up in the the history. And I can say from reviewing a lot of the lit that status quo remains about the same for the next 200 years. Mm -hmm. Whether or not those laws are enforced, though, is the big difference. And we really start to see movement in the United States in 1924 with the first gay group formation called the Society for Human Rights by Henry Gerber, although it shuts down really very quickly as there was such pushback from law enforcement.
0: Oh, I'm sure the pressure was just incredible. And then you have a 1925 brilliantly talented African-American blues singer Ma Rainey is arrested for having a lesbian party in her home while she was actually bailed out of jail by another extraordinary singer and friend, Bessie Smith. This sends a warning to gay men and women that they are not safe, even in their own personal domains. And... This reminded me that there looks to be an amazing film about Ma Rainey's life that is on Netflix right now, starring Viola Davis, and it's called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's amazing just looks
1: fantastic. Yeah, she's she's phenomenal. So like we were saying, there is still fits and starts of movement. It starts to happen with the organization of entities like the Mattachine Society. And very significantly in 1952, Christine Jorgensen comes forward publicly as the first American to share her experience being transgender. She talks openly about gender confirmation surgery and her hormone replacement therapy. And her emergence and openness about her transition really gets a lot of attention and conversation around the world. She's described today as the first visible transgender person in public media. While there have been many cultures around the world historically that have actually even revered transgender individuals, this was the first time in modern history that someone has come forward and talked about it and shared their experience.
0: Yeah, and especially in this country. And you just think 1952 America. Wow. Yeah. So in 1963, the first acknowledged gay rights demonstration occurs, specifically protesting against discrimination in the military in New York City. For years after, however, men and women were immediately discharged from the military, even for allegations of same-sex relations.
1: Right. And I know that we're continuing to jump around here, but the another leap forward happens 10 years later in 1973, when the American Psychiatric Association votes unanimously to remove homosexuality from the list of psychiatric disorders in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual version 2. Right. So
0: that's 1973. 73, it's a vote, put a pin in that. But this was extremely significant because the APA pronounced a resolution that spoke of the need to cease private and public discrimination, as well as calling for the repeal of laws discriminating against gays. So despite this vote and them promoting throughout the mental and medical communities that this is something that needs to go away, it actually continues to be pathologized in the DSM-2 and DSM-3 as sexual orientation disturbance or egodystonic homosexuality. But finally, in 1987, sexual orientation disturbance is removed in the revised version of the DSM-3.
1: Yes. I mean, you have to remember that up until this shift, the classification of homosexuality being a mental illness at this time in history meant that individuals could be institutionalized against their will, fired from their job, denied a mortgage, as well as many other limitations on their rights. Same-sex desires and orientation was considered a disease. So because you have a disease, you develop cures. What were the cures? Forced heavy psychiatric medication, psychiatric hospitalization against your will, mm-hmm. chemical castration. ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy, which today is a very painless process. Back then, it was brutal, and even to the extent of lobotomies being used.
0: This is where we really get some foundation for the intersection between sexual orientation, law, and how the American Psychiatric Association came around with their actions helping greatly to shift views in this country. So now we have some traction in moving the discussion of sexuality and that foundation for the intersection between sexual orientation and law and how the APA finally came around.
1: Yeah, they apologized in 2019. And that is the story of Dr. Henry Anonymous. In
0: 1972, a man entered a meeting of the American Psychiatric Association wearing an oversized black tuxedo and a jarringly altered latex Richard Nixon Halloween mask. When he took the microphone, a voice modulator was used to disguise his speech. He wasn't trying to make people laugh and he wasn't trying to shock anyone per se. He was protecting his identity and liability As a medical professional, after being introduced as Dr. Henry Anonymous, his opening statement was, I am a homosexual, I am a psychiatrist.
1: So as insignificant as that sounds, Dr. Anonymous's statement altered the trajectory of the APA and the American Psychological Association and the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual and the course of gay rights in the U.S., and then around the world. That man was Dr. Jonathan Fryer. He was an experienced, well-educated psychiatrist who decided that it was time to come forward. His speech and discussion with other panel members resulted in the eventual removal of homosexuality from the DSM list of mental disorders.
0: So this, in turn, led to repeal around the United States of discriminatory sodomy and anti-gay laws. It pushed the passage of local and state non-discrimination laws that cleared the way for millions of Americans to come out and live safer, happier, and more fulfilling lives, with the eventual guarantee that you could not lose your job for being gay.
1: Right. I mean... Interestingly enough, we're sort of having mirror of those same challenges today because our country is made up of states and states rights are very, very important to people for good reason and sometimes not for such great reason. It's even further ironic that despite the standing ovation that Dr. Anonymous received, there was a man in the front row clapping a hospital administrator who only one year later fired Dr. Jonathan Fryer for being gay completely unaware that he was firing Dr. Anonymous. The administrator was reported by Fryer in later interviews to have said, if you were gay and not flamboyant, we could keep you. If you were flamboyant and not gay, we could keep you. But since you were both gay and flamboyant, we cannot keep you. Just mind blowing. -blowing. So it's notable that Dr. Fryer previously lost a job because of his sexuality in 1964 when he was a third year resident at the University of Pennsylvania. You know, it's hard for us now to realize that we're only a half century out from this this very backward homophobic and misogynistic system that places gays in danger by criminalizing them. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Dr. Fryer had been in planning for some time, initially refusing the requests of activists who had begged him to be a part of a panel. And the APA was finally responding to the gay community, agreeing to have an open conference that would include two activists and two psychiatrists on this panel. Dr. Fryer knew that one of the psychiatrists had to be gay. And when no one else would step up, he stepped up. Barbara Giddings, an activist and a medical doctor herself, said, said, quote, that perspective needed to be heard from a gay psychiatrist by an audience that perhaps might be more inclined to listen to a
1: psychiatrist. Absolutely. Very smart strategy used by them in preparing for that. But look, removing homosexuality from the DSM contributed significantly to the growth of LGBTQIA plus rights and activism in many ways. The DSM was not only used by mental health professionals, but also by insurance companies, the U.S. government, and many other entities. This impacted schools, churches, and military to have much less power to discriminate against gays.
0: Yeah, and Dr. Fryer did not fully come out as Dr. Anonymous to the American Psychiatric Association until 1992, another full 20 years later. However, the actions he and his act- activist supporters took were integral in homosexuality as a mental disorder being removed from the DSM in 1973.
1: When these changes were finally instituted, the American Psychiatric Association made a public statement that stated, quote, the APA supports and urges the enactment of civil rights legislation at local, state, and federal levels that would ensure homosexual citizens the same protections now guaranteed to others. Yes.
0: So shall we look at some cases and ways that entities still tried to circumvent some of this discrimination and law issues?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And just a few years later, after all this started, there's still movement Mm -hmm. backwards.
0: Yeah. And so I want to talk about a case that in September of 1998, where sheriff's deputies in Texas responded to what was uncovered to be a false report of a weapons disturbance at a home. And they entered the home of John Lawrence and discovered him in bed having sex with Tyrone Gardner. Lawrence and Gardner, both adults, were arrested for violating the set Texas code at the time that outlawed this behavior. And the code made oral and anal sex a crime, but only for same-sex couples.
1: So both men were taken to jail and processed out the next day with the help of Lambda Legal, which is an American civil rights organization that focuses on lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender communities, as well as those that are impacted by HIV. Lawrence and Gardner challenged the charges, asserting the Texas Code violated their right to equal protection due to the law single out same-sex couples. They also challenged that the code broke their right to privacy. The court disagreed and denied their motion, and they had very little option left but to plead no contest.
0: They did appear, however, with the Court of Appeals initially ruling in their favor because the law was sex discrimination. This was due to the crime depending on the sex of the individuals involved. Unfortunately, after that ruling, the entire Court of Appeals agreed to reconsider their decision resulting in the conviction of both Lawrence and Gardner, and the court asserted that, quote, right to privacy did not apply in this case due to a previous 1998 Supreme Court decision. They also basically said that the court had the right, listen to this, to treat same-sex couples differently so that they could, quote, express their moral disapproval of gay people. That was actually said in a court decision.
1: Exactly. Finally, in 2003, the Supreme Court issued its opinion in Lawrence versus Texas declaring Texas's law against homosexual conduct was unconstitutional. So while there was initial relief, the LGBTQI plus community and their legal teams grew frustrated over the following years, even though the Supreme Court decision ruled that part of the penal code was unconstitutional. The law as of 2011 was still on the books. Oh my God. I know. And there was a lot of resistance in Texas to removing it. So even though in 1973, the legislature did rewrite the code, the result was just keeping homosexual conduct, a crime as a class C misdemeanor. And their justification for this bullshit has been, we don't need to address it because no one's really going to enforce it. Anyway. Oh
0: my God. Yeah. Until someone calls in like a false call because they don't like what's going on next door. Lovely. Well, simultaneously, there was another similar case occurring in Kansas. This involved two males residing at a home for developmentally disabled children. Matthew was arrested following his 18th birthday for having oral sex with another male resident there who was age 14. He was very close to his 15th birthday, but still he was only 14 years old. Because he had sex with another male, Matthew was sentenced to a minimum of 17 years in state prison. But consider this, if he had had sex with a minor female. Of the same age, he would have faced a maximum of 14 months in jail. So note the difference here, even in the placement of Matthew, a developmentally disabled 18-year-old who would not likely have had any knowledge of the laws because of his disabilities. And
1: in now the understanding. I mean, that's something yeah. we talk about in childhood development is like what is normal for someone who is neurotypical versus neuroatypical, developmentally disabled right. versus not. I mean, this is a big deal. Clearly, they were not calling in experts or they called in experts and they didn't listen to them in this case. It's just horrible.
0: Right. And and you and I also had firsthand experience with this because we would have entire groups that were just for individuals who were developmentally delayed, who had been convicted of sexual offenses. And Again, like all across different variations of developmental disabilities. But what was a common theme that we found with them is they had very, very little understanding of human sexuality. Basically, zero sex education was given to them, you know, through schooling or through these group homes that they lived in. Exactly. Or the limitations
1: members. that were presented to them prevented them even understanding what was going on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there's this, this understanding, but you also have a human being that has sexual urges and needs and feels all of this biology happening in their body and they don't know what to do with it. And they don't understand that there are things that are off limits because no one's talking to them about it because they're treating them as if they're asexual or something. Exactly. So it was very, very frustrating and a very sad situation whenever we would see that come across. But in this case that we're talking about, the ACLU unsuccessfully appealed his conviction, despite the same strong argument of the discrepancy between how the decision would have been different if he had had sex with a girl and the court utilized the same Supreme Court ruling as in the previous example, a case entitled Bowers versus Hardwick.
1: So finally, in 2003, after serving three years in state prison, the Texas court vacated the original 17-year sentence, but they returned the case to the Kansas courts for further consideration. By this time, the Lawrence case was starting to set precedent for further consideration of similar cases that acknowledged the rights of people to engage in same-sex activity in private. So the court's directive instructed the legal teams to take and observe closely what in Texas was called at that time as the Romeo and Juliet law, which is just a freaking gross name for a law because they both end up dead. Yeah. It's just too wrong on a grammatic and literature level <laughs> as well as other levels. It's
0: like romanticizing it. And exactly. then you're like, wait a minute, do you guys even know what Romeo and Juliet is?
1: What is it? Yeah. What well, do you even understand what it's about? But look, this ruling was important because it looked at oral sex differently And it was framed regarding heterosexual teen couples in contrast to minors engaging in that activity that were of the same sex. Right. So there was also further exploration of the age of the clients. In Kansas law, it's considered statutory rape when one youth is aged 14 to 16 and the other is older. The penalty is probation if the two are heterosexual, but not when the individuals are same-sexed teenage couples.
0: Yep. Infuriating. Okay. So our last example also shares a well-received media presentation. And we're going to talk about British citizen Alan Turing. And he was arrested in 1952 for having a sexual relationship with 19-year-old Arnold Murray. Because homosexuality was illegal at the time, he was prosecuted for homosexual acts. And part of his trial required him to confess to having committed, quote, acts of gross indecency. His sentence rather than go to prison, was to be treated with what we commonly call chemical castration, which is the use of hormone-altering drugs known as anaphrodisiacs, which were meant to reduce libido and sexual activity. They also completely wreak havoc on people's mood stability, as you can totally imagine.
1: So shortly later, Alan Turing died June 7th, 1954, two weeks before his 42nd birthday from cyanide poisoning. And while his death was listed as a suicide, there's controversy as to whether or not it was possible that he accidentally poisoned himself. So why would it be so unlikely that he accidentally poisoned himself? For those of you who may not know who Alan Turing actually was, he was one of the world's most brilliant minds. During World War II, Turing led a team of cryptographers, scientists, and mathematicians in developing being a computer that basically decoded secret German messages that were sent within their armies. His conviction halted his work. He was yanked off the project, which likely would have gone on to develop even more amazing accomplishments. Due to this development of code-breaking calculators, now known as Turing machines, Turing is considered now to be, pretty much by everybody in the computer industry, the father of artificial intelligence. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just mind-blowing. There's a really great series called Bletchley Circle, which is about women that worked with him uh, 10 years later after they've all been oh, dispersed really? from working on it. It's a great series on Netflix. I highly recommend it. It's fictionalized, but it's wonderful. And one of the things that came from this was some real shifts in the British population. It didn't happen immediately. And it's also estimated that around 49,000 people were convicted under similar outdated laws until homosexuality was finally decriminalized in England. Jeez. Well, in
0: 2009, former Prime Minister Gordon Brown issued an apology on behalf of the British government to Alan Turing. After acknowledging the court's actions and directives as horrifying, the former Prime Minister stated, quote, "This recognition of Alan's status as one of Britain's most famous victims of homophobia is another step towards equality and long overdue." But even more than that, Alan deserves recognition for his contribution to humankind. It is thanks to men and women who were totally committed to fighting fascism, people like Alan Turing, that the horrors of the Holocaust and of total war are part of Europe's history and not Europe's present." End quote. And finally, in 2013, sixty years after his conviction for gross indecency, Turing received a posthumous royal pardon. His family created a Change.org petition and delivered it to Downing Street, signed by almost half a million people, calling for more than those forty-nine thousand British gay men to be officially pardoned—the ones that you had mentioned previously.
1: And there's a wonderful film called The Imitation Game. Came out several years ago. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch as Alan Turing. It has an amazing script, an amazing performance. And of course, in the vein of not being able to please everybody, there was criticism of the film's inaccuracies, which is completely understandable. And there were people that really believed that his sexuality was downplayed. But the LGBTQIA plus civil rights organization, the human rights campaign, came out with a statement in support of the film saying that it truly honored. Turing's legacy by bringing his work to a wider audience, which I completely agree with because I'm embarrassed to say that like I didn't know who he was until probably about 10 years ago. Yeah,
0: same. That sounds about right. So much of this is about fearing others and utilizing non-secular beliefs to marginalize people. Please know that as much ground as the LGBTQIA community has gained in the last 50 years, there's a movement to drastically reduce it along with women's bodily autonomy. So I think this is our message to please be vocal in your support and be an ally however you can. And sometimes it's more than just being friends with someone. You know, there has to be some action, there has to be some posturing to be an ally, not just going with the flow or the status quo. So uh, as an ally, as a family of allies, I, I think that that's kind of the message that I wanted to, put on this episode today.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that. You know, certainly as my friend, you and I have had these conversations before about at my age, what I have witnessed over the Mm -hmm. decades of movement forward, movement back. And really, I have never seen this much movement backwards in such a short amount of time. People can say, oh, those politicians are so over the top. They're just doing these things for attention. They're trying to repeal Griswold. For those of you that don't know what Griswold is, Griswold is what makes birth control, legal in this country. Yes. You know, they are trying to reduce access to family planning services. And I respect, you know, believe me, I respect your personal and private opinions about women's bodily autonomy. I get it. But we have to separate what we feel versus what is the law of the land and not respecting the law of the land and what it could lead to. And if you want a horrifying version of that, watch The Handmaid's Tale and realize that there's nothing in that series, there's nothing in that book that has not been done some in the world or currently exists in the world. Mm. It's important to understand that there are 71 countries in the world right now that still criminalize same-sex relationships. While that seems somewhat removed from us here in the U.S., there are currently 16 states in the United States... That still have sodomy laws that are, quote, against perverted sexual practice and crimes against nature.
0: Crimes against nature.
1: I just want everyone to be aware. Just please be aware. Uh, Please reach out to your your friends, your family members that are LGBTQIA. Mm -hmm. Be an ally and be vigilant. I almost feel a little embarrassed saying that at this time, because I would hope that we'd all be way past that. I was hoping that we'd sure. be sort of in Star Trek, the new generation version. Of. Right. And yeah. here we are.
0: Yeah, here we are. Jeez. Sorry, guys. (laughs) I feel like here we are on this big downer, but it's it's serious. I think, you know, we're so busy and absolutely we can kind of go out, go through our lives and just be like, uh, well, it's like election season and that's why we're hearing about all this. And I remember like times of just going Roe versus Wade would never be overturned. Are you kidding me? Like that's a right that we earned. right that we fought for and we got no way. And yeah, things that are rights and whether you partake in them or not can certainly be stripped away.
1: Yeah. Try and take a deeper look at things if you can gently encourage people to expand their way of thinking about things, that's wonderful. You know, certainly don't put yourself in danger. And we really appreciate, I personally really appreciate all the wonderful support that I get from our listeners. You know, some yeah. that we've met most recently who mm-hmm. comment on, I love, I love you. How I love how you talk about your relationship with Dan. And that is, that's right. incredible for a man my age growing up in the environment that I grew up with where that could never have been talked about at all. And here you and- you so with I a microphone am, in front of your it, face it, doing it. Thank you. Here I am doing it with a microphone and, <sighs> and pissing my husband off by doing it, but that he'll deal. He'll deal with it.
0: <laughs> he can remain anonymous. Yes.
1: Yes. You can be Dan the Anonymous.
0: Well, thank you so much for doing the research on this episode. I think it's important. I think it's it's absolutely a bit of a departure for us. But it you know, as we looked at June being Pride Month, it was kind of nice, even though this is dark in its own way, in this dark historical way, not to get super dark with murder and other types of horrific crimes that we've covered when we too often have to talk about LGBTQIA victims, but just Thank you for suggesting this Dr Scott and I'm glad we did it
1: Well thank you and there's a lot of people that, not a lot, there's less and less, thankfully. There are some people that don't understand why we have to have Pride weekend or Pride month. And what I always say back is I think it's really great for you that you don't have to, that you and I don't mean it in a snarky way of calling someone on their entitlement, but I I do. I would like you to consider how great it would be for me not to have to have have a Pride parade that allows me to say this is who we are, this is who I am, and I deserve the same right you.
0: Absolutely. Sounds good. Another right, good one folks. in the books.
1: Yeah, thank you. And we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Thanks, folks. Bye. Bye.
0: We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our podcast production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Esri of Ear Cult Productions.
1: The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is used via a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use his great music. Please check out his amazing work on YouTube.
0: All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at L.A. Not So Podcast, on Twitter at L.A. Not So Pod, and on Facebook at L.A. Not So Confidential.
1: Please hit follow so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash L.A. Not So Podcast. So you can be the first to be notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way.
0: Thanks for listening and please join us each Saturday afternoon following the episode drop for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch.
1: Thanks for listening and join us next time.